0: we're starting a new series today on the book of ruth four chapters i'm going to tell you right up front The series will be much more beneficial to you, and you'll understand what's going on a little better if you would read the four chapters each week for the next four weeks. It's a very easy book. It's a fun book. It's an exciting book. Lots of twists and turns. Read the four chapters. If you read one every day, you get three days off. Or if you read something else then. So read four chapters, read them each week in the series, and you'll be well acquainted with Ruth, the principles that come from it, by the time we finish. Now, I wanna begin this morning with a reminder and a warning. Thanksgiving is less than two weeks away. Hey, how the heck did that happen, right? Christmas is six weeks from today. Now, I mentioned that because we were gonna call this series The Christmas Story According to Ruth. But we're not gonna do that because I don't wanna be reminded of how far behind I am at Christmas every single day. And you may be wondering, well, what in the world does Ruth have to do with Christmas? And again, you read the actual Christmas story with all the details we're familiar with, the shepherds, Mary, Joseph, you read all that stuff in the New Testament. But you know, the Christmas story has roots all the way back into the Old Testament. So let me give you a 30,000-foot flyover of the book of Ruth. A young girl, pretty much an outsider, makes a radical commitment to God. She travels to Bethlehem where she has a child that changes the world. That's what Ruth's about. Oh, did that sound familiar? Yeah, an outsider, young girl, travels to Bethlehem after making a radical commitment to God, and the child she has changes the world. You see, Ruth's kind of pointing somewhere. Ruth's pointing beyond itself, and we need to figure out how that story's going to work. Well, here's how this morning's sermon is going to go. I'm just going to walk you through the plot of Ruth chapter 1. I'm then going to mention a few themes that actually appear throughout the book, but they make their first appearance in chapter 1. And then we'll see, we'll begin to talk about how Ruth points beyond itself. Because the stories we read in the Bible, the characters, they're not meant to be ends in themselves. They're means to a greater end. And we're going to begin to see how that works today. I'm going to read Ruth chapter 1, but before I do that, I want to mention to you, it's a pretty devastating, dark chapter. Just to kind of tee up your devastation mode, have you ever eh, received, or even if you watch a movie, you empathize with someone who gets devastating news? The doctor says, there's nothing more that we can do. Your boss says, I hate to do this, but we have to let you go. The pilot comes on a loudspeaker and says, brace yourself for impact. Devastating words, right? Well, with those devastating words in your mind, listen to Ruth chapter 1. This chapter makes those words pale in comparison. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again and Urpah kissed her mother-in-law, said goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, Naomi said, Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning." It's kind of a downward spiral, isn't it? It doesn't start good, it starts bad and gets worse and worse and worse. Well, let's kind of walk through the plot to see what's going on. Well, the first thing we find is that there's a famine, but the very first words of Ruth give us a little context. notice the first words say, in the days when the judges ruled. See that? Now, if you look back, one verse from Ruth 1, that's the verse that ends the book of Judges. And the verse that ends the book of Judges tells us what Judges is about. Here's the last verse in Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. If you have an older translation, you read, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words... You don't tell me what to do. I'll determine what I should do all by myself. I'll look within, I'll come up with a plan, and if it feels good to me, if it's right with me, I'm gonna do that. Don't you come across telling me what to do. I'll make my own rules. I know what's right and wrong for me. I'll follow my own dreams. I'm the captain of my own ship. Boy, does that sound familiar? Maybe we live in the days when the judges ruled, in the days in which everybody does as they see fit. That's the context. And so Ruth kind of becomes this glimmer of light in the midst of these really dark days. So you need to get out of your mind that Ruth comes after Judges. No, Ruth comes in the middle of Judges. So in those dark days when all these enemy people are coming into Israel, they're destroying their crops, they're taking them prisoner, they're killing them. In those days, there's a famine, and that famine causes Elimelech to take his family, and they go to Moab. Now, the whole idea of a famine is kind of ironic, and it's especially ironic if you know what the word Bethlehem means. I don't think any of you speak Hebrew, so you probably don't know, or maybe you do, but the word Beth in Hebrew means house. That's why lots of Jewish synagogues, Jewish schools, and Christian churches and schools have Beth in them, right? Beth Yeshua, house of Jesus. What does Bethlehem mean? house of bread. In Bethlehem, lots of crops were grown, lots of things were grown there that fed not only the people in Bethlehem, but all around the surrounding area. Notice, Ruth begins with no bread in the house of bread. That's kind of ironic, right? The house of bread, the bread basket of Israel has no bread. Do you think that that's just coincidental? Usually famine comes from God to get people's attention because they've disregarded they're ignoring or forgetting Him. So there's no house in the house of bread. So Elimelech takes his family and leaves for Moab. Now if Moab sounds familiar to you, you read it a few places in the Bible. Moab is actually the son of someone you read in the book of Genesis. Moab is the firstborn son of Lot and his oldest daughter. Remember, Lot commits incest with his oldest daughter. That firstborn son is named Moab, and their descendants become the Moabites. Pretty immoral beginning, and it goes downhill from there. Eglon, one of the first enemies of Israel in the book of Judges, is the king of Moab. And Eglon comes in, he's attacking until Ehud goes and kills Eglon, right? And so there's a lot of enmity, lots of strife, lots of hatred between Israel and the Moabites. Elimelech, because there's a famine in the house of bread, he takes his family and moves them to immoral Moab. Does that plan sound good? It becomes a little clearer if you understand the names. Let me give you a a little lesson in Hebrew names. You know what the name Elimelech means? It's actually a really good name. Elimelech means my God is king. That's a great name, right? The problem is he's not living like it. <laughs> so, my God is king uh, is experiencing some uh, famine in the house of bread. So, he leaves the house of bread, the place of God's blessing, to go to immoral Moab because things aren't working out the way he wants in the house of bread. His wife's name, Naomi means pleasant, sweet, two good names, right? But for some strange reason, they have two sons and they name their kids Malan and Killian. And their names, for one reason or another, show how this story is going to go down. Do you know what Malan and Killian mean? Actually, here's their name. Malan and Killian, sick and dying. Imagine you have two sons, you name them sick and dying. Now, we're not exactly sure, was that their name or does that describe what's going to happen to them? We don't know. But they name their sons sick and dying. So here's, the, here's how Ruth begins, the first few verses. My God is king, take sweetheart, sick and dying. They travel from the house of bread to immoral Moab. That's a great beginning, isn't it? Yeah, we're starting in the middle where things aren't, bad, aren't good and they go south from there. Oh yeah, it gets worse. Not just the famine the famine leads to funerals. Elimelech takes the family. They wind up in Moab. They're not there very long, and Elimelech dies. We're not exactly told why. We're certainly not told how, but my goddess king dies, which means now Naomi has no husband to provide for her, we're not sure how old, sick, and dying are, but after they're there for a while, they marry two Moabite women. Now they have wives. But soon after that, they both die. So now Naomi is left with two daughters in law in a world where women can't support themselves. This is a penniless trio that has nothing but terror and devastation in the future. Remember, I told you a devastating word? This story is south and going down. Why did Elimelech take his family to Moab? Huh. Because there was no food in the house of bread. Why go to Moab? Because there's food there. Why do you want to go where there's food so you don't die? What happens when he gets there? When he gets there, they die. He dies, his two sons die. He leaves the house of bread when there's a famine, goes to Moab, immoral Moab, because he wants to save his family from death. They get there and they die. You know what the point of that story is? God determines when your last day is coming. It's not you. It's not you running after this or trying to find food and trying to find the best paying job and making sure retirement's in order. God determines when we check out. I was uh, meeting with my small group on Friday morning. There was an estate attorney there, and he started laughing, and all of a sudden he said, I had this client come to me a few years ago, and he was an older man and he had lots of resources, but he had never taken time to do estate planning, to prepare his will. And so finally the attorney, estate attorney, when are you going to work on your will? He said, I don't want to think about it because I don't want to die. (laughs) To which my friend said, well, I got news for you. You are going to die. It'd be a whole lot better if you kind of prepared for it rather than leave that headache for your kids. Huh. My God is king. Pleasant, sick and dying, an immoral Moab. Can't get a whole lot lower than that, can you? But then the story begins to change. It changes because Naomi hears that there's bread back in the house of bread again, that God has been merciful to the people and to the people back in Bethlehem, and so now there's bread back in the house of bread. So Naomi says, you know what? I'm going to go back at least to familiar Uh, faces. I'll go back when I have relatives. I'll go back to Bethlehem. But she knows that that's going to be a nightmare for the daughters-in-law. So she says, you guys return home. You go back. And Orpah goes back. Ruth says, I'm not going back. In fact, at the return, Ruth says these famous words that many of you have heard lots of times. Sometimes you hear them at weddings, right? Here's how it goes. Ruth says, to her mother-in-law Naomi. I'm not going back. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Notice, Ruth's commitment isn't just to Naomi. Ruth's commitment is to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God. Boy, where do you think Ruth learned about God, was influenced toward probably through Naomi. So Naomi, even through this bitter experience, even through this devastation, Naomi's influence on Ruth is a real positive one. And Ruth says, I'm going with you. I'm going back with you. And they make the journey back. 50 miles, the two ladies. And that brings us to the arrival. They arrive back, and as you might guess, in a small town like Bethlehem, not a big city, a small town where everybody knows everybody, it's noticed pretty quickly that Naomi's back. But something's different. Can you imagine the chatter? Hey, Naomi's back. Have you seen her? No, I haven't seen her. I think she put on weight. (laughs) There was a famine here. It must not be one in Moab. Well, how's Elimelech? How's that sick and dying? How are they? We didn't see them. But she's got some strange girl with her. And I don't think she's from around here. You know how that goes? Well, they come and say, Naomi, what's going on? And Naomi immediately says, don't call me Naomi. Remember Pleasant? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitter. Bitter. In fact, uh, Naomi even says toward the end of the chapter, Shaddai, remember all the way back from Genesis, right? My God will provide... My God will provide, now, you can see how bitter this is. Naomi says, my God will provide has made my life bitter. Wow, we don't talk like that in church, do we? My guess is when you came in today and somebody said, well, how are you doing? Even if you're not doing well, you pretended, right? I'm doing fine, praise God, praise God. And Naomi's not saying praise God when she arrives back in Bethlehem, right? She's being honest. And the chapter ends just with a little tagline that says, this was about the time of barley harvest. Huh. You see the glimmer of hope? The seed of change? Mercy, grace are come? The chapter begins with famine, ends with a harvest. Boy, God's somehow involved in this downward spiral, isn't he? God's somehow weaving this story for their good for the common good and for his glory. But boy, it's hard to see it from inside that chapter, isn't it? We have three more chapters that you'll read about, but we're going to stop there for now. Let me mention a couple of themes some principles that appear in this chapter one that you're gonna see grow to fullness in the next few chapters. But I wanna kind of plant the seeds in your mind just like when you get a you plant the seed and then the harvest will grow. So let me plant a couple of seeds that hopefully over these next few weeks will grow. And as you do your homework and read the four chapters, you see if these three thematic seeds aren't growing to something bigger. Here's the first one. Admit the obvious. Admit the obvious. Can I state the obvious from chapter 1? Life's hard. My life's miserable. Naomi doesn't pretend. Naomi calls it what it is. Don't call me pleasant. Life hasn't been pleasant. I'm not happy. I'm not full of joy. My life's bitter. I know that God's sovereign. I hear that he loves me. I don't see how those two things are coming together in my life. Life is hard. And since God is sovereign, he's somehow involved in this. And I'm bitter. And to tell you the truth, I'm a little ticked off. Admit the obvious. You know, part of our problem is we pretend and we lie. I'm kind of reading through psalms these days. It's amazing how the psalmists, regardless of who they are, they're honest with God. You know, a whole big chunk of psalms are laments. You know what laments are? Complaints. They're complaining to God because they know He could do something about it, but somehow their life isn't matching what they think the story should be. Somehow their life isn't experiencing all this grace and mercy and all these promises. Life's hard. Admit the obvious. I mean, some of you this morning, life's hard. It's terrible. You get bad news, it stings. People sin against you, you bear the pain. You sin against people, you feel guilty. People abuse you, they break your heart, your kids mess with your lives, your parents messed you up. Life's hard. Admit the obvious. Well, here's another obvious thing we need to admit. Most of life is ordinary, Life's hard, and if it's not hard, it's just routine, ordinary, mundane. Ruth is not like Exodus, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings. It's not like that. Ruth is not like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you want to know why? There's no miracles in Ruth. There's no visions in Ruth. God really doesn't show up and do something miraculous in Ruth. Nothing. You know what happens in Ruth? Just the normal stuff. Ordinary stuff. Routine, mundane, mundane. Isn't that where we live? We live in the hard times and the routine times. So today's Sunday morning. It's been pretty routine, right? I would be willing to guess the vast majority of you, maybe all of you, none of you received a miracle yet today. You woke up and it was hard to get up. You know, you're still a little thankful for that extra hour sleep. You're kind of leaning into that a little bit. You're still ticked off because it gets dark earlier now. But it's just routine though, right? You get up and you complain or somebody complains back on to church and you're sitting there hoping I'm done soon. And you'll leave here and you either go out to eat or you go home and you'll fall asleep. The Eagles don't play till tomorrow night so you have nothing really important to do. And it's just a routine, right? You'll get something. It's a normal Sunday. It's a normal Saturday. It's a normal week. You'll go to work tomorrow. You'll jump through. the life's, or- life's hard. And if it's not hard, it's just ordinary. You ever wonder how we fake that? We fake that life is hard when people ask us how it's going, and we lie. I'm so thankful. Could you imagine if Naomi responded, how we often respond at church, so Naomi comes back and, Naomi, how you doing? A dead, praise God. <laughs> Sick and dying, died, I'm, I got this Moabite with me. Life. Co- God is so good, right? Th- that's how we talk. Ordinary? We don't like ordinary either. Do you ever look at somebody's posts on Facebook, Instagram? Check that out. Nothing's ever ordinary. How about our language? That was awesome. I had an epic vacation. It was good. No, it wasn't. And we do this the worst when it comes to our kids, right? I I was thinking about this with them, you know, the soccer. I'm not a soccer guy, but the soccer thing last week. I was kind of chuckling driving into work one day. And I thought, you know, suburban parents like you guys, like me, We don't drive our kids to soccer practice anymore. What do we do? We have meaning quality time, taking our pre adolescents to a sporting endeavor and on the way we can teach them the value of teamwork and camaraderie and how they need. We drove them to soccer practice, right? How about when you go to the elementary school or junior, I'm stepping on toes, the concerts at school? the skill that those kids displayed in the, it was awesome. It was awful. That's what it was, right? Anybody that can sit in the seat can join the orchestra. It wasn't epic, it wasn't awesome, it wasn't even ordinary, it was bad. Graduations are maybe the worst, right? I've been to more graduations than any human being should ever go to. And almost always you hear a speaker say something like this, I look out over this class of graduates, and this class is uniquely gifted to change the world. The skills that they have, the expertise, the things that they've mastered, life in our community, our country, the world will never be there. They're our kids! We know them, right? It's not awesome or epic. It's ordinary and life's hard. Admit the obvious. But you know what? The good news is God loves to work in the ordinary, doesn't he? And interestingly, when you read through the scripture and you often see those big, awesome, miraculous things, they often don't have the intended effect. So, you know, Josh a couple weeks ago talked about, you know, Mount Carmel. Do you realize the chapter after Mount Carmel, right? God shows up, the sacrifice is consumed, the stones are consumed. Nothing happens. They don't repent. Jezebel's trying to kill Elijah. He takes off because he's scared to death and runs to the desert. After the miracle, nothing happens. When do things get changed? When God shows up to Elijah in the still small voice in the cave. He says, Elijah... Now you go back, and here's what I want you to do. In the ordinary, routine, mundane things of life, I'm going to show up. You just keep living in the ordinary hard times and watch me work. So don't get depressed over the ordinary. Don't get depressed over the hard times, even though they wrote, be honest about it, right? Complain, complain to God. But watch them work expect him. The second thing, principle-wise, that you're going to see throughout the book, ponder providence. Now, when you talk about the miraculous, when you talk about God showing up in big ways, that's kind of God's one hand, right? But that's very seldom, right? That doesn't happen. The other hand is God's invisible hand, his providential hand. God is sovereign. God loves us, but he's weaving our lives into this amazing, beautiful tapestry. Thread by thread, mundane detail by ordinary event, hard time and terrible devastating. God's weaving it together, but we don't see it, right? It's kind of invisible. But when you look back over a couple years, you look back over a couple decades, you look back over a lifetime, you look back over a generation, and you smile and say, Yeah. God not only does the big, flashy, flamboyant, miraculous stuff. He works in the ordinary, the mundane, because God is sovereign and works through providence. No miracles, no giant answers to prayer, no visions, dreams, and Ruth. God's fingerprints are all over that book. You read this often. You check it out this week and it just so happened, and it just so, oh yeah, and it just so happened. <laughs> yeah, all those just so happens. Yeah, God's behind all that just so happened, right? Ponder providence. I know that we live life and think, boy, I wouldn't have done it that way. And God, this is what I want. And you're not coming through to it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You pray for what you want, and you live toward, but you recognize that God's a whole lot smarter, a whole lot wiser, a whole lot more loving than we are. You just follow through with what he's calling you to do in the mundane and the hard times, And you watch how our providential sovereign God brings about his perfect end. And the last theme you're going to see throughout the book is all about identification. We need to embrace identification. You know, most of the changes and the transformation that happens in Ruth come because one person is identifying with someone else. So in chapter one, we have Ruth identifying with Naomi. And that changes everything for Naomi, doesn't it? Let me uh, kind of role play just a second. Ruth looks at Naomi when Naomi says, you go back and get a life, right? Go, if you go back, you can have a life. Go back to your parents' home. You know, you're young enough, you can find a husband, you can have children, you'll be able to live out your dream. Don't go with me. If you go with me, you're going to sacrifice your life. So here's Ruth. If I go back, I save my life and Naomi loses hers. If I go with Naomi, she gains a life, and I lose my life. I'll go with Naomi. See, that's identification, right? And that becomes a giant biblical theme where later in the book, you're going to see Boaz identifying with Ruth And you're gonna see that couple identifying with God's plan. And isn't that the ultimate picture of salvation where Jesus comes to identify with us, God with us, Emmanuel, and as he identifies with us, we identify with him. All of the benefits that he has earned, he gives to us, just like all the benefits Ruth earns and Boaz owns, they give to each other. Embrace identification. Let me mention quickly some pointers. And we're gonna look in three directions. Remember, I've said before, the Bible isn't an end. The Bible's a means to an end. The characters in the Bible aren't ends. They're means to an end. The story that you read, the account, they're means to a greater end. So here we go. How about the characters? When you look into the scripture, it's kind of like a mirror, isn't it? So when you look into the pages of Ruth, or in just of Ruth chapter one, do you see yourself? Do you see yourself in Elimelech? Your words are, My God is king. But as soon as the going gets tough, as soon as you know the cash flow isn't working out the way you want, as soon as you hear there's greener grass over here, you're not living according to your name anymore. Heck with that, you're following the money or you're following the relation. Are you like a limolek, right? You got the right name, you say the right things, but your life's not really fitting the name. Are you like Naomi? Your life's a mess and getting worse? Are you honest about that? Can you share that? Here's the reality. You may not like this, but we are just like sick and dying. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're not sick today, you will be. And we're all dying. We are Malin and Killian. The problem is we often pretend that we're not. We want to avoid that. By avoiding it, we never do maybe what needs to be done. We push that business off. We really are sick and dying. Are you like Ruth? Coming alongside someone that you can help, but it's going to cost you something, right? If I stay in this, I'll get my life. I'll get my afternoon free. I'll be able to do what I want this week. I'll do, Or I can kind of give my life my time so someone else can have a life and have an afternoon and have a meal. Are you like Ruth? Identifying for someone else's benefit? Character's just in chapter one. Do you see yourself in the mirror? But the pointer isn't only to the characters, it also points to God. God's sovereign, God loving. God's all over this book, as we've said. God is providentially in charge. Do you look beyond the details of your life, at least regularly, daily? Can you sit down and say, Lord, I don't understand this. Life's hard. It's ordinary. I don't know why this stuff's touching me. I trust you. Help me today to follow faithfully, even though I don't know what any of this means, and it sure hurts. Somehow God is providentially working. And most importantly, the Bible's a mirror that shows us ourselves. It's a window that allows us to see God, but it's a window through which we see Jesus. If you don't know already, the story of Ruth kind of ends in Ruth, but it's picked up again in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is one of those long, boring chapters that most of us skip over and don't read because Matthew 1 is a genealogy. All these guys begot these guys all the way through. But if you look at the middle of verse 5 and verse 6, you'll see where the story's headed. Look at the middle of verse 5. Boaz, who you'll meet next week, that she becomes Ruth's husband. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. There she is. Obed becomes the father of Jesse. And Jesse becomes the father of King David. So here's a nobody, penniless, pagan from Moab who becomes the great-grandmother of the greatest king that Israel has ever known. Sounds just like God, doesn't it? Yeah, but we're not done yet. If you continue reading the genealogy, it kind of ends in verse 16. So in that genealogy, right, we've got Ruth and Boaz, all them. And then verse 16 says this, Jacob became the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. Who is called the Messiah. Providence. God working. When we think he's not. So out of this crazy downward spiral. Of Ruth chapter 1. We find the ancestry. Of our Savior. And Jesus built. Into his genealogy. The girl from Moab. One of the roots of the Christmas story. A young girl makes a radical commitment to God, travels to Bethlehem, and has a child that changes the world. King David, King Jesus. He'll change your life too. Father, thanks for these four chapters They seem pretty innocent, but boy, they're like power-packed. Lord, help us to kind of immerse ourselves in the chapters the next few weeks. Not just to learn that story, but to see where it's pointing, to see ourselves, to see your hand, and ultimately to see a clear picture of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who occasionally works in the flashy and flamboyant, but most of the time works in the mundane and the routine to accomplish His eternal purposes, and He wants to use us to do it. Thanks, Father, in Christ's name.